Welcome back to Taproom's podcast, WTF Am I Drinking? We're so excited to join you again and talk about drinks. The ins, the outs, what they're all about, why we love them. I'm Courtney Eisman, and I'm your host. I work on Taproom's blog. I'm joined by Hannah Heath, creatively covering brand strategy, development, and awareness for Taproom. Each episode, we're turning to a brand we love to walk us all through a different fascinating aspect of beer and other beverages, from ingredients to process to pairing. Today, we're setting our sights on lagers. We're talking basics, like what separates lager from ale. We're talking the many styles under the lager umbrella. We're talking the specifics of lager brewing. And we're talking about what that all means when you're a brewery that only brews lagers. What kind of dedication does that take? How do you flex those creative muscles? And how do craft beer drinkers respond? To find out, we caught up with Vice President of Marketing, Rob Day, at Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers in Framingham, Massachusetts. He answered these questions and more, taking us along the Jack's Abbey journey that started over a decade ago. This is WTF in my drinking, lager-focused breweries edition with Jack's Abbey. We are here with Jack's Abbey, Vice President of Marketing, Rob Day. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're so excited to have this conversation with you for Taproom's podcast. Me too. Thanks for having me, Courtney. Good to meet you, Will. Yeah, we're super excited to talk about, you know, lager-focused breweries. Um, and obviously, Jack's Abbey is, you know, such a I, I just like instantly, I personally think of Jack's Abbey when I think of a brewery that specializes in lager, of course, uh, and I'm sure... That, that means we're doing our job, right? Yeah, I'm sure many <laughs> people do. Uh, so we will jump right in. Um, you know, I want to just get into like sort of, before we get into just the concept of a lager-focused brewery and talking about all things lager, um, just to get to know Jack's Abbey a little bit specifically, uh, if you can tell us... When, uh, first of all, Jack's Abbey actually first opened and sort of like what shaped the brewery, right? Like what, what sort of shaped the path? Why a lager-focused brewery? Sure, no problem. We've been around for 11 years. We opened in 2011, which I, I know your fans will be pretty well steeped in craft beer culture. So they're probably aware just shy of 2,000 breweries that year, very different landscape than we see today, which is uh, interesting to be a part of a journey for that long as a very specified type of brewery. It was founded by three brothers uh, who came from an entrepreneurial family who built uh, sort of a business around bagged ice in New York City, Connecticut, in the general region, bringing it to grocery stores uh, for multi-generations. But they sold the business just as uh, the three brothers who owned Jack's Abbey were coming of business age, let's say. And there was kind of a promise like, oh, we'll help you get started with something, figure out what y'all want to do. And Jack, the eldest brother, spent some time learning the brew industry, spent some time in Germany, fell in love with it, was brewing uh, here around Boston in some different spaces. 
and it became apparent that this is what they wanted to do. So the brothers had their their meeting, and the youngest one was ironically not even 21 during the course of this, and still in college. But if uh, if you're a 20 year old college student in Vermont, and your brother says, "Let's open a brewery," I think you'd probably say yes. Uh, I know I would. Uh, so. As, as the story goes, they weren't sure if it was legal to have them on the permit even at the time. There are lots of question marks around like, how do we do this at this stage? But they knew they were all in and really just dove into a business that they could get excited about. In the initial phases with some of the training Jack had had, loggers were super appealing. There weren't a lot of people doing them in 2011. Again, kind of time warp back, it was the time of yellow fizzy water lager and that was it miller bud cores ran the word lager and it was kind of a you know a swear word in craft beer to make lager so it was interesting like no one's doing this there's better beer out there that is lager we could do it but then the you know, the lager only portion actually started as a constraint it's three brothers in a small warehouse in framingham massachusetts you can't manage multiple yeast strains. You can't manage the production and planning of that brewing, you know, maximum capacity, only so many tanks. So, well, let's just dive in and do this. Like, no one's doing it. And honestly, that's how it got started. But as they built the brand and as new products came out under the brand, they really saw that, hey, this is a space we can excel in. And we firmly believe, like, you'll be the best at the thing you're doing. Don't try to do everything. So it kind of built from there naturally and then became really kind of our, our banner to wave. Like, this is what we do. Do it better than anybody else. Do it different than anybody else. And just really try to own that. Yeah, I love that. Cool. I, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I you hit on something that I wanted to discuss too, because later in our conversation, I want to talk about the perception of lager now in craft beer. Um, but if there's any more detail you could get into, like, I'm just having, you know, I, I'm just like imagining being a lager taproom in 2011, 2012, 2013. Like, what were people walking in? Were they walking in like, you know, just try to impress me with a lager, you know, like, what was sort of that perception then? It was, it was, where's your IPA? Yeah. Um, that was the perception. Uh, if multiple people asked Jack's advice on starting a lager only brewery in the ensuing years and his advice to all of them was don't, uh, it took a while and we were hamstrung even further because our location in Framingham was a small t tasting room and there was no licensing to pour pints. So people could only come in have uh, samples and purchase growlers to go. So you're getting people to commit to something, you know, nearly sight unseen or roll up and ask for a pint because they didn't understand it wasn't a bar. We were the only brewery in the area, but it was also the generation of uh, the craft beer excitement was really hitting that inflection point. So people were getting in their cars and driving around to three, four, five breweries for a weekend. Like, oh, what are you doing over here? So that's the audience that really built us up, the people who were willing to get in their car, go check out a brewery somewhere in this state. Like, oh, there's a new one out in Framingham. Like, never heard of Framingham. Let's go see this place. And I, I was one of them. Uh, I did come here in like the first months of them being open and try a bunch of beers I did not expect. It didn't occur to me, honestly, as a guest that this was going to be a permanently lager-only brewery. I was just wowed that there were awesome loggers on tap. And for example, I probably left with six growlers that day with my friends. So uh, 
really had to build it ground up. A lot of people were very confused by that experience. And a lot of craft beer people who came out kind of took that approach. You, you mentioned Courtney, like, impress me. Like, why are you doing this? Stone's been rallying against lager for years and told us it was terrible. <laughs> like, well, it's only terrible because it's been made cheaply. We can do it better. Give it a shot. And people, once they got liquid to lips, were pretty impressed. So that, that earned us some credibility early on. Cool. Um, we're talking about people that are, you know, I guess maybe already at least some level of like a craft beer connoisseur or, you know, they're into it. But I think there's people, you know, uh, maybe at all levels who don't have like the deepest understanding of what separates ale from lager. So especially for people who are just getting into all of this, um, coming from an expert brewery, can you <laughs> maybe touch on that difference a little bit? Sure. And I'm going to answer this knowing some fans are going to uh, muddy the waters. So I want to admit that up front. Styles in craft beer were kind of made to be broken. So I'll give you what it's supposed to be. But with current trends in beer, people are kind of mishmashing the styles a bit, even the strains of yeast, which is the biggest differentiator. So when you think about beer as a whole category, there's technically two, cat two types of beer, and it's separated by the yeast, lagers and ales. They act very differently in terms of fermentation and character they impart. Lager yeast is very happy in cool temperatures over a longer period of time. And through the process of fermentation, they are not really imparting any flavors on the beer. Flip all of that for ale. So warmer temperatures, shorter times, imparting flavors, and the yeast themselves ferment at different parts of the liquid. So lager yeast is at the bottom of a tank, ale yeast is at the top of a tank. So they're completely different species interacting with the wort in different ways to create CO2 and alcohol, which is their job. They're the ones making the beer. We make sugar water for them to eat. So that's sort of the dividing line. I think a lot of people have been playing with fermentation temperatures and times and kind of muddying the ground between those, that sort of fine line. So we're firmly in the lager yeast makes lager camp. <laughs> and they are different species over using that then that's the direction it's heading. But a lot of people are, you know, happy to mess with that and play with some of the rules around it and create some, some different flavors and impressions from lager yeast as well. So you'll see a little bit more of that probably, you know, as craft beer develops and people push into the different corners. But essentially what we're trying to do with lager yeast is create a zero-sum flavor profile so that the malts, the hops, and the other ingredients and process that we're utilizing really shine through. And it's perfected to the point where one of the beers we're going to taste, you know, changing fermentation or cellar temperatures a few degrees during particular parts can change the flavor profile for the better or the worse, depending on what you do. Yeah, I think uh, sort of expanding on that too, like with like lager is a whole category, uh, which I think also surprises some people. Um, just that not only does a brewery like Jack's Abbey prove that lager does not equate fizzy yellow water, um, but even beyond what people have, you know, beyond the association that comes up for some people with lager, there's like all these different styles. It can be all these different things. Can you talk a little bit about just how sort of rich the lager umbrella is? Yeah, I could go on and on about that one because this is, this is what gets us excited too. We start with some traditional methods, but Lager is a whole category. Think about 
someone asking, can I have a logger, which happens a lot. They'll come up to a booth at a festival. Can I have a logger? And I'm like, which one? They're all logger. <laughs> and they're like, what? But there's this flavor and that. I'm like, exactly. Uh, so we experience that still today. It's like, that's like walking up and say, can I have a beer? Like, how much variety is there in beer? And for us, knowing what to expect from the fermentation process, which like we talked about delineates the ales and the lagers, allows us to play in a, a whole courtyard of our own. So you know, people who like IPAs, there are awesome, awesome versions of hoppy lagers out there. One of them is on our docket to taste. And even within that, you can do sort of New England style hoppy lagers, West Coast style hoppy lagers. You could do really uh, tropical hoppy lagers. You could do sweet ones, bitter ones. That's a super uh, small way to slice and dice it. But that's, a, that's what it is. And when we talk about lager as a category, we can push that from the hoppy beers to traditional Bavarian style, that like biscuity, clear, pilsner. Or we have, uh, at the end of every year, we release some pretty extreme versions of lager in our Framing Hammer series. And it's a barrel-aged Baltic porter uh, fermented with lager yeast bottle conditions. It's like an eight-month process to make this beer. They're all... 12% ABV and above, they drink like a, a rich dessert stout, and we can get some really interesting flavors from that. And uh, even earlier uh, in the year, we worked with a brewery in Estonia as part of a series. We do a Loggers of the World series where we highlight different breweries around the globe and try to understand lager for their culture and what makes it unique. And Estonia is arguably the birthplace of Baltic Porters, so we spent time with that brewery on Zoom recording conversations around what makes it special, what ingredients can twist it. And even though we've made 50, 60 varieties of that beer in our past, the one we made with them was even different. So really, as you think about beer and the variety you see in the world, you can apply almost any of that to lager, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there's. I, I, it's crazy to think about just, I mean, this could be its own podcast entire series. Like you could just keep going down these wormholes of different different lager like sub style histories and cultures. And mm -hmm. I actually, um, I, when I visited the Jack's Abbey tap room, I think last year, it was really cool to see that people were getting all these flights. And I think people were like really surprised that you could do flight upon flight of lager. Mm -hmm. um, it's just it, like the, the variety there just is really cool. And by the way, people should definitely visit the tap room. It's a super <laughs> thing. Yeah. That flight is always a top three seller. Uh, because I think people are surprised by the variety they can get. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that variety, um, maybe we could get a little bit into now, like the specific Jack's Abbey sort of brainstorming process, you know, how it does get decided what's going to be brewed next and, you know, what you sort of want on that draft list or in these cans at any given time. Sure. Uh, I'd like to say it's like, Steps one through 10, here's what we do. But uh, I think you've talked to enough craft breweries, that's rarely the case. Uh, we have a lot of ways beer comes to life here. Some of it is just purely individual inspiration. Like we'll see instances where Jack or one of the other brewers just like, this is something I, I need to make and we try it, we make a small batch and it catches a little bit of success and, and we ride with it. And quite frankly, that's a lot of where the early success came from. There was no process. I want to make this It's a small batch, make it, sell it. People like it, make more of it. 
And then, you know, as the, the world got more competitive and we obviously release a lot more styles and deal with distribution and communication and trying to get the message out about what we're doing, it can slow up the works a little bit, but it can also turn out some really interesting things. So we like to do, it usually ends up being like an 18 month process. Obviously some things go faster than that, but in our grand world view, we're in the phase now here at uh, early fall where it's like open canvas idea time. So we're talking to customers, front of house staff, brewing staff, uh, office staff, we're getting everybody to contribute to a singular survey with some kind of goofy questions on occasion, some directed questions, trying to build a little bit of creativity. And then we take a smaller team from that, curate those ideas like, oh, I like that one, that one makes sense and apply it to, to what we're seeing people ask for out in the market, what the headlines are reading like, oh, like, yeah, ever five people said we should make a double hoppy lager <laughs> and we haven't done that in a long time and people are gravitating towards Imperial IPAs in the headlines like, let's do that. That sort of kicks off the next process where we'll prioritize all those ideas and start tackling them on a pilot basis. So if you are visiting the tap room, you'll often see a beer series here called Copilot. That is the series for the beers we're testing for the future. So whatever the crazy ideas we're having, uh, whether no matter where they come from, once they hit that system and they get brewed and packaged, they're placed in the tap room. We start watching how people react and talk to them about it, see how new ideas are really met kind of in a real world scenario. Obviously, if people are in our tap room, it's different than being out in a bar in the real world or ordering from a, a shop online. But the results can really give us some insight into what's getting our crowd excited and, and what we should really go forward with. And then we spend another round of refining the liquid, making sure everything is perfected the way we want to be. Sometimes that can take three, four, five, six brews to get to what we want. Um, we're combining customer feedback with internal uh, data collected uh, through an app we use. And then we try to prioritize which one of those beers should fit into sort of a market segment for the next year. Is it still going to remain a taproom only beer because it's really niche, but the people who like it really, really like it. That's cool for us too, because we have a bunch of tap lines here. Or is it something everybody's liking was a top five seller and we just have to release in a, a big way for the next year. So that process, like I said, we typically, while we're thinking of ideas now, we've just finished building our calendar for next year to put out to the world, usually in December. And then all of those beers that we were working on throughout this year that people might have tasted in our tap room could possibly be bigger releases next year. I love how intentional this creative process is because, you know, <laughs> as you already had mentioned, um, people, I think, instead of sticking to one um, category or kind of what they're good at um, or maybe interested in, um, things are trending so quickly. And if you don't jump oh, yeah. on it, you know, fast enough, um, you're just you're going to miss the wave. Um, and it's crazy to see, you know, you, you, I think there are so many breweries now that um, you, you would never think they would put out like a seltzer or like a triple hoppy, you know, IPA or something, but they do it um, just because the trends are so up and down so quickly. Has there been anything that you guys have been influenced by or maybe you have been feeling the pressure to put out um, like based on what's what's trending right now? It's a great question, Hannah. The, the pressure is always there. It's like knocking at your door daily because you're you hit the nail on the head. The the speed at which something can become popular and take off 
as a micro style or a whole category like seltzer, it's fast. And the wave could be short lived. It could be, you know, a long lasting trend line that we should be a part of. To date, we haven't had an external pressure that really pushed us into doing something, mainly because of that intentionality. We're trying to be leaders in our category rather than followers. And quite frankly, a lot of us believe once a trend has hit that sort of pace, you're really too late already. Um, We would rather be working on the next best thing rather than catching up to what people did last month. So Seltzers, for instance, great example. Did we talk about it? Sure. It's very easy for us, though, because it's not a logger. We don't make seltzers moving on. <laughs> so as like being able to have that like clear line, like there's no way to do lagered seltzer. Nope. Then it's not on our docket. Move it out of the way. Go do the next cool thing. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, that you are leaders in this, in what you do, um, I want to get into a little bit the brewing, any behind the scenes peaks that you can sort of give us at the process, because I think, you know, a lot of people say with lager brewing, there's like nowhere to hide. Like, not that you would want Mm -hmm. flaws in an ale, of course, but like lagers are so, those flavors are so like clean and, you know, pure. And I think, you know, I guess, is there anything that Jack's Abbey is like always ensuring that is done in terms of ingredient sourcing or brewing techniques or just like anything that goes into like that absolute quality control and like commitment to that craft. Sure. Uh, there's a lot. So I'll try to summarize this in conversation fashion because it's, it's really in depth. When you talk about nowhere to hide in lager, I think about it, you know, if you're in a loud concert venue and your friends next to you talking normally, you barely hear them. They have to yell to really stand out. And that's how it is with a lot of beers, especially on the ale side. Yeast is imparting a ton of flavor in an ale. The hops, especially if you do an IPA, they're big bombastic flavors. You can hide a lot of flaws. Uh, Sweeter malts and blends can really hide a lot as well, depending on how they're done. The way lager yeast works, as we talked about before, is it's trying to impart zero flavor. So now that same friend is talking at normal volume, but the room is completely silent. (laughs) So you hear everything that person says, crystal clear, maybe too loud. So we always take that into consideration. There's a few things that we do to make sure that we're delivering the best product depending on what we're trying to make. A couple examples, we use an old school process of decoction for most of our beers, all of our traditional beers, but most of them. It's a mashing process of basically heating up water and mash, taking some of the water out, adding more back in. And what it does is, that's a very simplified version. So please, all the real beer people out there. Don't take that for the literal. (laughs) I do know what decoction is. It's just a really long, nerdy explanation, so I'm going to cut it short. But we have uh, that process allows us different temperature extractions of the malt, which gives us a wider and deeper range of flavor out of every malt. We import a lot of our malt from Eric's farm in uh, Bavaria. We visit that farm regularly and check the crop and, and do all of that fun stuff that you've seen in commercials before, but we don't have a commercial for it. Uh, we import a lot of hops from a family farm in Germany, Seeds Farm. That is a major way that we get sort of uh, a lot of control over our ingredients and process at the forefront. 
we're very, very close with our maltster here in Massachusetts and spend time down with them, making sure things are uh, malted to the specifications that we need. And then uh, in the actual brewing, past the decoction mash, uh, there's daily cellar checks, there's daily quality control out of the tanks, measurements. We do a process called spunding on all of our lagers that is a natural way to carbonate beer. So I think CO2 shortage has been a big topic in craft beer lately. And we don't actually need CO2 to make our lagers because when when wort is fermented with yeast, it creates CO2 and alcohol. In lagering, it takes a long enough process that you can basically seal off the tank and collect the CO2 naturally from the fermentation process as long as you're measuring it and you release that pressure at the right time so that you don't overcollect and create a bomb, which is very dangerous. <laughs> so our ability to take that traditional process and capture our CO2 is an advantage right now, but it also creates just, in our opinion, a, a better tasting beer. Past that, uh, I mentioned the app that we use for innovation. We also use that throughout the year for thing, uh, for our, our testing. So every batch is packaged, tested vigorously. Uh, every week there's two beers on the docket for taste testing and recording in an app where 40, 50 employees participate. So that data set is pretty rigorous. And our lab itself is running tests at the microscopic level. We have a PCR here to test the DNA of our yeast strands and make sure nothing's going off there. Most people became familiar with PCR through COVID, which is not the best way to learn about science and genetics, but hey, we, we all know a little bit more, so we can understand the genetics of our beer because of that. So our lab is nice small room with probably the most dollars per square foot in the building because the equipment is, is so incredible and it ensures that we're able to keep the quality and that the process is maintained throughout. So just really to recap, ingredient control, process control, using traditional methods with some innovation, and then really harping on that lab part and making sure all the quality checks are met throughout. How would you compare all of that to being a brewery that pretty much only, you know, more commonly, obviously, more Loggers are, you know, which again, we'll get to loggers are becoming more popular now in the craft scene. Uh, so I think we're seeing more of them from more breweries, but still, I think it's more common for breweries to almost focus predominantly on ales. Um, so I just so I think people really appreciate what it means to be a lager focused brewery. Um, can you sort of everything you just said, I like, can you maybe compare that to like what it means to focus on ales? Like, how much longer a lager is sitting in tanks and, and what that means, you know, for being a brewery that's only doing lagers. Yeah, I guess the time in tank is exactly the, the biggest difference. A good ale brewery should be doing all those same things except naturally carbonating because ale doesn't sit in the tank long enough to collect enough CO2 without off flavors. So that's, that's its own separate discussion based on that. They could do any of those other things and most of them are running good quality programs and making sure their beer comes out uh, the way it's supposed to. But for us, with upwards of six, eight weeks in the tank for a lot of our beers versus 10 to 13 days for an ale a lot of times, there's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. And you have to make sure you're on top of uh, temperature control in your tanks, uh, different readouts throughout the day, making sure that the beer is progressing the way you want 
and that if uh, if things are off, that you know what to do. Does, does the yeast need more nutrients? Does it need a cooler temperature, a warmer temperature? So having experts running that space and keeping up on that over a period of time is really important. And I think as loggers become, we'll probably get into that, a little bit more popular now, a lot of people are jumping into the category maybe without that experience. And uh, that's, that's mainly what I encourage. Like it does take a little bit more finesse, education and care. Uh, it shouldn't be rushed because you get a much, much better product when the time and care is put in. Usually that comes from experience. People try some new things like, oh, it's good enough and kind of move on. And for us, it's been a long time of trying to perfect this craft. And then if you look even long before us, obviously, Jeremy's been doing it since the 1800s as the most popular style in the country. So there's a lot to learn from and we have a long way to go ourselves. But I think it's important that the care is given throughout that process because it is such an elongated time. More can go wrong and it's more obvious when it does. Yeah, it makes me think about whiskey. Um, like people have had some very <laughs> creative ways of trying to age whiskey faster, you know, by like putting in wood chips or you know, what have you, and um, thinking that it's going to be the same product. Um, and obviously with whiskey, I think it's easier to, you know, see those imbalances. Um, but I, I think people can appreciate the care that you take to, you know, um, monitor this throughout this entire process and take that extra step of education to um, do it correctly. Yeah, that's that's what we're hoping out there. It's care of time is hard to show on a label right like how much effort went into every step and we're not there at every shelf every store to to do this conversation so i hope a lot of people listen um because <laughs> we do think it matters and you talked about whiskey i always use barbecue as as my example like you can cook a brisket fast it's not gonna be good it's not gonna be good uh it it needs the time it will be cooked it will be edible it is not good if you cook a brisket fast so uh, anybody listening down in Texas heard. <laughs> uh, well, we are going to taste some of these beers now. So we'll actually all see right. or taste and smell and all the things, everything that we've been talking about in beer form. Um, so let's see. You want to, I guess, talk a little bit about the three beers that you've chosen and why and let us know which one you think we should start with. Sure. We're going to kick off with post shift, um, mainly because I have been made fun of for making this my like every meeting, every after day beer. It's named post shift. It's designed for exactly that moment. So I use it exactly for that. But I, I had a, a partner group I met with probably every week for a couple months. And I always order this beer. And after the end, he's like, you always get post shift. I'm like, yeah, it's always my first like after work here. That's what it was made for. It's called post shift. He's like, I guess that's true because I just thought working here, you'd take a lot more uh, variety. I'm like, nah, it's my second and third. <laughs> so uh, a reason that I, I love this beer and, and why we make it is this is your very, very traditional Bavarian style Pilsner. So we're importing the malts and the hops, like I talked about, uh, straight from Bavaria from the same farms, malting them to, to our specifications and trying to create that real crisp, biscuity, very, very slightly bitter. That's a, sort of a difference between um, Pilsners and some of the other lager styles that are more classic that we'll go through. But when you smell it, you'll get like that really good 
beer smelling beer. Uh, it's hard to describe. It's like kind of that doughy cracker biscuit combination. And I think that's enough to talk about. I should probably take a sip of it. You can pick up very quickly, like a really subtle carbonation that's nice on the tongue. And when the sip finishes, it's, it's done. Like it doesn't linger very long, uh, which sort of begs the, the next sip. And as most of our beers are, we, we obviously, I talked about some bigger alcohol beers, but a lot of ours play in the traditional lower alcohol range. This one's at 4.7%. And when you're thinking about you're thirsty, whatever you do for a job, you finish. It just really is that sort of transition point, that break, low alcohol, nothing crazy. And you try to think about like, what is really good beer flavored beer? And this is a great example of it to me. Yeah, it's great. It is that really like crisp cracker. And it, as soon as I, it's like, I open the can and like the, like the aroma fit, like just instantly, mm-hmm. like in this really just nice, subtle, like you're saying beer flavored beer way. Um, and you get that sip and it's just like, Ooh, like biscuity, like a slight hint of like a little bit of like a floral hop maybe. And then it just does it. It like lingers for the exact amount of per, like perfect amount of time. It does. And the, it sits on your tongue fully. It's that, I love what you pointed out. Like when you open the can, you smell it. If you contrast this to, you know, what we were up against when launching the the big three, they're pilsners as well. And when you think about that that style, they don't talk about the style very much. But you don't get that aroma when you crack a can. <laughs> you don't uh, you don't get that full mouth experience when when drinking it. It's really just trying to be as as thin and inoffensive as possible, which is that's what they're looking to do. That's good for them. Uh, this is not that. So if you open sort of cheap beer next to this, uh, they could be the same style, but they're made so differently with such different ingredients and care that, well, hell yeah, like that's going to be a much different beer. Yeah, there is. A, that's, it's something to the the mouthfeel on the body too, right? Like there's, it's it's as light as you want it to be. Like there's not a hint of like heaviness here mm-hmm. at all but unlike those big three beers like you you feel this you're like i am mm-hmm. drinking a good quality beer there's like quality stuff in here it's not just going down like that yellow fizzy water i'm gonna put that on the next can quality stuff in here you also <laughs> put beer flavored beer on there yeah. beer, really good beer flavored beer with quality stuff in here <laughs> see we're doing this we're, we're gonna work this out live that potion used to be my run clubs like recovery beer um also so it post like shift is very interchangeable so you can put whatever you know you need on there um but anyone who's drinking Michelob after their runs can just go ahead and switch over for a better experience I think. exactly i love that i love that it is you're right like that's kind of the thought it's post shift but what's your shift it could be your exercise routine. It could be watching your kids for six hours at a playground. It could be, you know, sitting in front of a Zoom call for too long. It can be working out in a mine. It could be whatever. Um, you know, it's sort of that immediate reward. And if you're going to drink the beer, and you might as well enjoy Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, do we want to move on to the next yes. one? We're going to go to House Lager next because these are – this is going to be sort of our adjacent comparison. This is a Hellish style. So this is an unfiltered, 
also more of a, your Bavarian style beer. So same ingredient locations. You'll get a, a very similar color, very similar reaction to it. You'll instantly smell like a very, very different smell. None of that, you know, effervescent bitterness coming from the hops. Hellas's are meant to be sweeter. So you should get a more full mouth feel, a uh, fuller malt flavor, and much less of that like bitter crispness that you got in the Pilsner. And for me, like this is, this is a competitive beer for its category for sure. And it's a really hard beer to make. You're talking really long fermentation times, carefully curated temperatures, and the ingredients that go into this are, are pretty critical to making it great because it's so straightforward. The, this is our flagship and, you know, we three, <laughs> two, what, what, one malt, two malts, and one, one set of hops, and that's it. <laughs> and it's like you, you got to really get the process right and the time right to get that flavor. And this is just really your, like, most straightforward beer. I think this appeals to the widest audience because I don't think it's as unique as Postship, which is why I usually start with that. But when you're comparing two styles that are relatively similar, we have traditional German-style lagers, and just put these two next to each other. And there's a pretty significant difference you get out of the flavor. Yeah, this is, I feel like for, you know, again, for people who like wouldn't assume this, there is such, it's instantly recognizable, the differences between post shift and, and this one. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the fun. We talked about really obvious style differences earlier, but within even these traditional categories, there's, surprisingly big differences of flavor in styles that are pretty close. And we did, as part of our, our sales and marketing conference this summer, our, our lab uh, director put four traditional lagers in plastic cups for us to taste and try to identify. And everyone knew, everyone could tell the, the differences. Not everyone could identify them blind, which is really tough to do. Um, but everyone could identify the differences in four beers right next to each other that are relatively similar. So I think if you had them at different times, you know, one at a bar, one at a ball game, you might not remember the difference, but tasting them side by side really highlights the difference. Yeah, for sure. And it is like the sweetness, uh, you know, if anyone's thinking like, oh, like sweet, it's not like a, what you think of, I think when you think of sweetness, but it, it's just that, and especially tasting house lager next to post shift, it's like a different kind of crispness almost, you know, like you're getting, it's leaning a little bit more into just like the rounded biscuitiness of it, but still so light. Exactly. It's a good way to put it. Uh, all right. Should we go hoppy now? Okay. We should. And this one, this one has some fun stories to talk about. So this is Hopponius Union. Arguably, you could call it a West Coast style hoppy lager would be perfectly fair. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people would instantly understand what you mean by that. Color, I don't know, it shows up pretty well. Still a very clear, just like obviously the, the coolness on the cup is opaquing it a little bit, but uh, a little bit more amber. The malts in this are built to, to back up the heavy hop bitterness, a lot of classic hops. This was brewed at a time where IPL hoppy lager wasn't really a category in craft beer. So I, I remember seeing while digging through some of the old awards, I think the first award we got for this beer was in the box strong beer category because no one knew what to do with it. 
like, uh, what is this like super hoppy beer that's also a lager? Like, put it in the other category. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> um, but you like instant aroma. You're gonna probably be taken back to some of those classic West Coast IPAs you might remember, which are having a little bit of resurgence. But that dank, piney, a little bit of citrus fruit, and I, I think the the flavor really backs that up. And then there's a, a strong malt character, but traditional to lager, like it it finishes pretty clean and crisp. And what's the ABV on this one? This one's 6.5. So we went from 4.7 to 5.2 to 6.5. So we're cranking up the, the chain a little bit. And this, in terms of our everyday available lagers, that's like the top of it for us. Most of them are in the in the fives. Some drift down to the fours. Um, we make a blood orange wheat beer. It's like 4% on the dot. And the, again, with... With lagers, it's it's one of those things where the, the subtlety is kind of the specialty. We you think about wines in your youth, you want big bombastic wines and you kind of get used to that. And as you come to appreciate a category like that, the, the subtle nuances that make a wine special kind of shine through a little bit more. Lagers are, when done right, are already on that end of the spectrum. Obviously, Hoponia seems a little bit different. We get some big classic hop flavors in there to, to drive a different impression home but what i like about this beer going back to some more early conversation talk about the styles in beer ipa people are like oh i can't have lagers like there's nothing for me like oh yeah there is and this is just one example because we do have big double juicy hoppy lagers and we have like some really we did a whole series of single hopped lagers um for a good while actually and then we made a variety pack out of it there's a ton you can do that would appeal to most ipa fans and do some interesting work with it. This is, I think people would be, those IPA fans would be really surprised by this. I mean, this is, I, I'm a lager lover, but I'm also a West Coast IPA lover. And it, it's like crazy how much of, like you said that, like there's a piney dankness and a citrusy. And like, then there's also that hint of like, a, almost like the caramel malt of like a West Coast IPA. But mm-hmm. it's so it's still as like light and refresh. It's like the best of both worlds. Seriously. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, it's one of those beers too. It's been around, man, who knows, 2013 ish, somewhere around there, 12, 13. So it was wildly, wildly innovative. Like I said, there wasn't a category for it then. Uh, and people te- like people who were fans of it tend to forget about it sometimes You're like, Oh yeah. And every time I come back to it, you're like, wow, this is like the best of many of the worlds I grew up on in craft beer. Like West Coast IPA was a lot of people's entry to craft beer. And, you know, there's some nostalgia to that. And with all of the innovation, you kind of forget about those, you know, more classic styles and beers and flavors. And every time I have one of these, I'm like, man, that is damn good. (laughs) I'm biased, but it is damn good. It is. We'll say it. <laughs> I love that you're challenging what people think they like too, because I think a lot of um, like just being on the taproom side, like consumers can get very stuck in what they think they like and then won't even go outside of those styles. Um, so this is a you know great reminder that you should continue to explore and you know, open those doors because there's always new innovations coming around. And I feel like, um, 
you know, breweries like Jack's Abbey are getting so much recognition for their innovation um, in these categories. Um, Courtney, I also think back of when we talked to Athletic because, you know, they have such a great non-alc IPA and we kind of talked about the same thing about, I don't think any IPA fans would go near a non-alc IPA, but they I think have really, um, you know, stood on their own and said, you know, it's possible. So that's great. <laughs> it's true. Ex- expert tip. When you go to the tap room, order a pint of your favorite thing and a taster of the other thing, <laughs> like always. Uh, there was a scoop shop, like an ice cream scoop shop. I forget where now that, that was like mandatory. It was like how they built their whole business was like, there's a specialty scoop attached to every. So you got like your full scoop and this tiny little taster on top of something else. So you always had to pick two flavors, which I thought was really cool. And in the craft beer world, you can always order a taster. It's it's almost always available. So try something new, have a favorite, you know, whatever whatever makes sense. Come to our festivals. There's Festivals are back. So <laughs> you can actually see us out in public. I try to work a bunch personally because I love that conversation of someone coming up and saying, uh, this is what I normally like. And I'm like, don't worry, I got you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And actually, so this is a perfect uh, lead in to, you know, we talked about the perception of loggers when Jack Sabby first opened. And now we've sort of mentioned that uh, loggers are becoming more, you know, not everyone is as just single-minded IPA obsessed right now. Like lager, people are understanding, you know, what's absolutely amazing about lager. So how maybe have you seen at Jack's Abbey the perception change? You know, how has it maybe changed for the people who are coming into the tap room or coming to these festivals? Um, and I'll add a, a sort of second question to that, which is like, how do you think maybe Jack's Abbey has contributed to that? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, it's, really feeling like an inflection point where loggers are starting to move into a bit of a trendy category. So there's a handful of us out there only doing loggers. There's still not that many, but there's a handful only doing loggers. And if you're in the the brewing circles and the brewing communities, they're often very well revered, very popular. If you go to Colorado, our friends at Beer Stud, you can go during Great American Beer Fest, during Craft Brewers Conference, Beer start is packed and it makes five loggers. <laughs> like just slammed. Because every brewer, like, I've had enough of the flavor wheel. I'm going to have some lager and I just want delicious, well-made, perfected lager. And so I think what happens a lot of times since we're so entrenched in the industry and trying so many things that we tend to burn out a little bit quicker and move on to the next thing. And we've seen a lot of that in our community earlier. And now it's sort of moving to the consumer community as well. It's being helped by more people educating and participating in this part of it. Uh, like stuff like we're doing right now, you, three, four years ago, probably wouldn't be that interesting for a lot of people like, uh, I don't care about loggers. Um, there's so many breweries doing cool versions of it now that the appreciation is starting to grow. There's a few uh, smaller breweries doing it that are a little bit more hyped up, which brings a lot of attention to the category. And just that education that we were alluding to earlier gives a lot of credibility to what goes into making these beers. They're a lot harder to make. They take a lot longer, a lot more tank space, a lot more expertise. Uh, it's, it's just challenging. So if you can nail that and you can get it right, 
I believe you've, you've sort of earned that credibility, but it is slow earned here. And as I don't know if we're the oldest lager only brewery in the craft industry, but I haven't found one older yet. So if anybody out there knows one, let me know. Uh, but that's not that old. That's 11 years. So it, it hasn't been a thing even as long as the IPA category, at, you know, in terms of, of attention and trendiness. And when we opened it, like I said, that was Bud Miller Coors, not the domain of craft beer. That changed over these 11 years for sure. I like to think we contributed to that by, you know, let's go back to post ship. Like you open that can, you're like, wow, that's like, that's what good beer beer is supposed to be. And being able to work on that and perfect it over the years and create sort of that classic version that's done really well, that can earn respect, not only here, but abroad, we get a lot of uh, global attention for the beers we make. And a lot of uh, Jack's time goes to traveling to Germany and visiting breweries and talking to them every single year. There's a respect in Germany for what we're doing here, which is pretty remarkable given you know the culture of Germany is very protective of their beer. So for us to make something that they can respect is is a huge uh, nod to us that that we appreciate. And then, you know, we've uh, Hoppy Lager, for instance. Like I said, if you go to the beer advocate list, I think we own four of the top ten spots in the category because we helped invent it. So, you know, other people probably tried some different things, or while the IPA craze was taken off, we're going to play in our own sandbox, which is lager. And <laughs> this is sort of how we did that version and, and made our options. So I hope that we've been not just a, a contributor to the, the quality and showing people that there's great flavor here, but hopefully a leader on the education front and being able to sort of ring that bell of why this matters and why you should pay attention. Uh, it's all we got. So we're going to be talking about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking to the future, um, you know, what do you think, I'll ask first, before we get to Jack's Abbey in particular, I'll ask just about craft lager in general. Like, do you think, like you said, it, it, it's pretty new, right? Like this this focus on lager in, in the craft spectrum. Uh, where you think we're going to keep going with this? Will people continue to, will the appreciation grow and sustain? And, and what are you excited about when it comes to looking forward for craft lager? Yeah, I absolutely think we're on an upswing. I think the inflection point was you know, maybe a year or so ago, and now we're kind of going up up that slide. So I can see it just anecdotally, all the people getting into the category, very, very trendy IPA makers are making loggers. And that, that tells you something like, okay, if you built your house on double hoppy, hazy New England IPAs, and you're putting out a Pilsner, that's the signal. Um, and I think that's going to continue. So I'm excited that the attention is on the category and that consumers are going to be met with it. I'm excited when I go to a festival and, and people are like, oh my God, there's good lager. I didn't expect that. Like that's, that's remarkable to me. And I poured an example of it. I, I went to Tampa in January, good time to go to Tampa, um, from New England, <laughs> but we get down there and I was, I was pouring a festival and they, I was working with my brother and I was like, Listen, there's a lot of extreme beers here. We're going to get things going. You're going to have a quiet table. And then about half an hour, 45 hour into this fest, we're going to have the biggest line here. And he's like, no way. Like, and absolutely on point. Like, people walk the fest. They have 
double barrel aged, triple hoppy, and they come have have some of ours like, oh man, I needed that. <laughs> and you, I love love that reaction. Like I knew you did. I knew you'd be here. And then it starts to build momentum, and those people come back like, I want, I need a second one. I just had like five five IPAs. I'm, I'm coming back for another one. And you see that, and it's like a microcosm of what I think is happening out in the world. People have had so much variety so many big flavors that identified craft beer for so long. Now we're kind of maturing into this like expert craftsmen and women who can make great beer and perfect it down to the details. And I think that's what's the most exciting part of the future is that the more of us who do this well, the more people will care about it. Yeah. Uh, So I mean, I, I like I'm personally very excited about that. And I'm excited to, you know, keep seeing what Jack's Abbey does specifically within all of that. Um, so I, I guess we'll finish up by just kind of same question, but for the brewery in particular, like what does the future hold for Jack's Abbey and what are all of you at the brewery sort of most excited about? Oh man, there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming down the line. I can't talk about all of it. Um Shucks. We can talk about uh, a few things. Yeah, it's, it's like, what's appropriate today? Like, what day is it? I work in the future, like yeah. two years. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah. So I'm like, what <laughs> do we talk about now? Um, one thing that just hit our tap room that's very interesting, the the people at Omega Yeast uh, created this stylized yeast for loggers. And essentially, it's this very, very specially created yeast that can release really cool flavors from barley, hops, and grape-derived products. So we could take a classic Pilsner or Hellas recipe and turn it on its head with a new yeast that propagates like these fruit flavors and just unexpected results. I think part of lager being more interesting to us means it's more interesting to all of our suppliers. The maltsters are creating new malts for us to play with, uh, getting into organics. The yeast makers are creating cool things for us to play with that we never had access to before. That sort of gives us more color in the palette to paint with. And that's that's pretty cool. And I think for next year, um, as I look at our, our lineup for what's coming, we have a really strong range of stuff people haven't really tasted before which is kind of cool because I think we've been very consistent with like progressing our portfolio and then there's like a good jump for next year. And then the year after that, I have to imagine with all of these new tools available to us, some of the stuff we're testing now, like we talked about for, for that year are just going to be hopefully pretty inspiring because I, the stuff we're tasting and that one in particular is on tap in our tap from now, the first batch we created. So you can come try that here. Also pretty interesting to us, more in the traditional sense, is uh, Jack is working on writing a book that will release in 2024. And the inspiration of it involves a lot of travel, a lot of education, a lot of learning. And so he's out there a lot over the course of this next year, picking up that material and, and bringing things back. And a, you know, we're trying to build a series around some of the things, learning like, oh, uh, going to Czech Republic, and we've made a lot of Czech beers. So like, can we perfect this dark Czech lager that we've already been making every now and then as a pilot? And that whole series for us is going to be very interesting to play with along with some of the other tools we've had in our book. Really cool. That's super exciting. 
Yeah, so much exciting stuff. I know we can't wait to see it. Um, I'm sure everyone listening and drinking Jack's Abbey beer, whether they've been doing it for a long time or, you know, are new to it now. Like, yeah, I, I feel like this is going to get every everyone pumped, whether they were like lager all the way or, ah, I think I'm going to get into lager now. Um, it's, so, it's time. Get into it before it's too late. <laughs> yeah. We really appreciate you walking us through all of this. Um, I am going to make the post shift, the post podcast episode recording um, <laughs> to say cheers to you and cheers to Jack's Abbey. Thank cheers. Thank you so much for having yeah. me. This is awesome. Thank you so much again to Rob, and thank you all for listening. Head to Taproom to try Jack's Abbey Lagers for yourself, and let us know what you thought of this episode. Find Taproom on Instagram and Twitter at T-A-P-R-M underscore, and tell us if you have any burning questions about beer styles, hard seltzer techniques, anything. We might just do an episode of WTF Am I Drinking About It. Cheers! Cheers!